This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. Every workplace has its own culture. Insider acronyms, private Slack channels, expectations both explicit and unspoken around things like dress code and working hours. But it's who you work with, and maybe more importantly, who you work for, that's what really shapes a workplace culture and ultimately can make or break how happy you are in your job. And if you work long enough, you are bound to have had at least one bad boss in your career. I've been lucky to have some really great bosses over the years, like the editor-in-chief at my first magazine job who listened to and valued my ideas even though I was young and inexperienced. But I've had a few bad bosses over the years too, like the manager who yelled and threw pens when she found a small typo in an email. In my experience, the old adage has always been true. You don't quit a job, you quit a manager. No amount of other workplace perks or even meaningful work can make up for a bad boss. But few people, if anyone, sets out to be a bad boss. In fact, most bad bosses probably don't think they're doing anything wrong or at least have no clue how unhappy their employees are. So what makes someone turn into a bad boss? How can you recognize where you're going wrong if no one gives you honest feedback? Joining me to discuss how well-intentioned managers can inadvertently turn into bad bosses is Diana Kander. Diana is the author, keynote speaker, and host of the Growth League podcast, which catalogs rules for growth from remarkable women. She also co-authored a Fast Company article titled, We Interviewed 50 Bad Bosses to Learn It Only Takes a Few Toxic Behaviors for Everything to Go. Diana, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Kate. I'm so excited to be here. So in the article that you wrote for Fast Company, you said that many of the bosses that employees had submitted had seemed like good bosses on the surface. They had a passion for their work. They had thoughtful philosophies on leadership, but they had managed to kind of undermine their confidence with their direct reports. How does that happen? How does someone who intends to be a good boss end up doing things that employees hate? I mean, it happens inadvertently, and I think the core issue is that we act differently when we're under stress than we do in our ideal. So when I'm interviewing these bosses for their philosophy and their approach to leadership, they have one set of answers, and yet when they are under a stressful environment, they have a completely different set of behaviors that they might not be aware of. I think we can think of some truly awful behavior from bosses. You know, when we think of a bad boss, we think of things like yelling and harassment and unreasonable demands. But what are some of the common traits that you discovered that bad bosses exhibit that maybe aren't the most obvious bad boss behavior? You know, the biggest realization for me in the article, Kate, was that bad boss is a continuum. Good boss, bad boss. Like, we're all both of these things, whether we're trying to be or not. And the thing that helps us be on closer to the good boss side is the awareness of the kind of impact we can have on others. Most of the people that we interviewed had no idea 
what their employees were going through. And sometimes it was dire circumstances that they were facing as a result of behavior of the boss. So it could be something as simple and and the most common is micromanagement really destroys the confidence of the employees that we work with. And you mentioned yelling or any kind of anger or judgment that a boss can exhibit towards people who are trying to do their best at work. Uh, we, we cataloged a number of different situations and we try to come up with the seven most common things that we heard, but definitely above and beyond all of those was micromanagement. And so what's behind some of those things? Why does somebody end up, you know, they think they're a good boss, they think they're they're doing the right thing. Why are they, why do they end up, you know, let's take micromanaging as the example What's behind the stress that's behind the action to micromanage, for example? At a very bottom line level, it's the fear of the leader themselves of not performing to their own expectation. They have, you know, a lot of pressure that they've put on themselves to deliver and they don't consciously realize how it is coming through to the people that they work with. And so they're just so fearful of things going wrong that they micromanage and inadvertently destroy all of the curiosity and innovation in their workforce, not to mention confidence. Yeah, exactly. And I think there was another interesting one that you pointed out, um, only caring about deliverables. I think that that's maybe something that you know, as a boss, you could say, well, I'm focusing on just what matters. I'm not, you know, I'm not micromanaging. I'm not like getting in their business. I'm just like focused on on the results. What's wrong with that? And where's that coming from? Yeah, well, I think we've had a realization that we manage human beings, maybe in the last five to 10 years, certainly over the period of COVID when it became undeniable <laughs> that human beings have things going on in their home lives as our professional and home lives began to merge as one. And understanding the human aspect of the people that you work with and caring about it can help you get to those deliverables much faster. But ignoring it is certainly not going to help you get to the goal faster. Yeah. You know, as you point out, people are human beings. A good boss like cares about you as a person, not just as a cog who, who gets your work done. Well, here's the other big aha that we learned. Somebody can show up and do a good enough job and only be giving you like 5% of what they have. And there's a huge range of what it is that they can give you when their heart is in it. And that goes way beyond the like competent, incompetent. It's like they have so much more to offer. And the bosses that don't recognize how they get in their own way are getting the smallest amount from employees. Like they're just doing enough (laughs) to get by instead of what they could be doing, which could be moving the organization forward at an incredible speed. How do you recognize that as a boss? Like how do you recognize that, you know, as you say, like somebody could be coming in and doing their job and and getting their job done, but they're only giving you 5%. Like how do you recognize that? Let me just say like the biggest aha for both my co-author and I is we set out to expose some very particular bad bosses <laughs> who we knew people who worked for them. And so we were going to find out, you know, what what's going on behind the scenes by interviewing 50 of these kinds of people. And it only took a few interviews for us to lean back and say, wait a minute, like when we were under stressful situations and we were leaders I think we may have done some of these things. And so we actually took a pause in the interviewing of the 50 bad bosses, I'll put that in quotes, to interview 
many of the people whose employment with us, both my co-author and I, ended under not the best terms. And we just listened and we said, did we do any of these things? What was it like working for us? And boy, did we hear tales of completely different leadership qualities than the ones that we thought we exhibited. Like we were bad bosses. And for us, that was such an aha moment. Like we all do this. And the thing that will separate whether you're having a negative impact on others is how aware you are of your tendencies when you are stressed and how, you know, that is communicated to other people. How do you get that honest feedback? Because I know you mentioned that many of the employees who submitted their bad bosses didn't actually mention it to their bosses. And, you know, finding it out from your employees or doing that kind of self-evaluation, how do you come to the conclusion and like figure it out? I'm talking about employees who are crying after work, who are afraid to like leave their house, withdraw from social behaviors. I'm talking about that level of impact that people have on their employees and have zero idea that they're doing it. And to me, when I realize the impact that we as leaders can have on other people and how much greater it is than I ever thought possible, it really made me want to dive deep into understanding how I impact others. And so the best way for us to do this, the first and foremost, is to have some kind of 360 review process where we allow for anonymous feedback from the people that we work with. And part of that 360 feedback should be, you know, in what ways do I destroy your courage or confidence? In what ways do I stand in your way? And these are scary questions for us to ask. But I think that you'll be surprised by some of the feedback that you'll get from employees. One of the other questions that we started asking was, what do you wish your boss knew about you and courage? And one of the most interesting pieces of feedback we got was from somebody who said, I wish my boss knew about the relationship I just came out of. My previous employer was so scary and yelled at me so much, I was so afraid to mention any kind of ideas or, or speak up in any way. And I want them to know that about my previous employment because I'm just thawing out of it. And so asking these kinds of questions, like, what do you wish I knew about courage or how I can create it in others, I think would do a lot to open up the door. That's a great suggestion because, you know, we, we think about, you know, the annual review process and, you know, a lot of times baked into the annual review process is something about like, how can I manage you better? And of course, employees are not really going to be that honest. I mean, I'm, I'm a manager and I've gotten the like, you're doing a great job. And I'm like, am I though? Like, you know, (laughs) please, please be honest with me. And then of course there's the, the exit interview. And that's usually when like a lot of those festering things come out, but then it's too late. Right. You know, they're, they're already leaving. But I, I wonder if, you know, like what you suggest could be great for it as part of an onboarding process. Like tell me about your last experience with your employer and, and how you like to be managed and and what worked and what didn't in your previous relationships with managers. Because that, that sounds like that's something that could be useful from kind of from the get-go. Yeah, the two big questions that we would encourage somebody to ask up front would be, tell me about a manager that created courage in you. What did they say or do? And then tell me about a manager that destroyed your courage and what did they say or do? And you're going to learn a lot about the types of people that you're working with and what kinds of behaviors or words are important to them. 
And I, I think that it's such a little amount of time to invest up front that can give you huge dividends moving forward. Yeah, exactly. And and kind of getting back to, you know, some of those examples of those traits that, you know, maybe are a little bit sneaky and bosses maybe don't consider. What are some of the the traits that, you know, and, and you know, not talking about things like, you know, yelling and anger and... and Throwing things. <laughs> oh, I had a boss that threw things. Yeah. I couldn't believe how many people we interviewed who had people throw things at them. Yeah. I mean, it was just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny, you know, you know, and I, I said it at the top of the show is, you know, everybody can think of instantly a bad boss they've had and instantly a good boss they've had and the traits that those bosses exhibit. But I do feel that there's kind of maybe harder to pin down sneakier traits that you you mentioned in your article, you know, things like not reinforcing positive performance, you know, or withholding negative feedback or ignoring suggestions or not dealing with underperforming coworkers, those kind of things that are not like aggressive bad behaviors, but start to kind of eat away at things. Yeah, chip away at their confidence and their certainty. And I think it boils down to the fact that people want to have a relationship with their leader, not just to be told when they're doing something wrong. I learned as a parent that if you want to correct some kind of behavior with your kid, you have to give them like a large number of positive reinforcements for them to even be able to handle the negative feedback. Otherwise, they'll get so hard on themselves. And I think the true same in the workplace. If you want them to hear the feedback when they could be doing something better, you have to offer them explanations of when they did something well so that they build up their confidence. Yeah, that's really important. You know, the not just, oh, I'm only going to mention it when you do something bad and just be quiet when you do something good. And I thought it was interesting. You highlighted in the article too, withholding negative feedback. Now, I think people might hear that and go, well, isn't that kind of a nice thing to do? Like I'm keeping it to myself when you do something wrong. But why is that something that ended up being highlighted? Because it builds and it festers until it blows up and somebody ends up throwing your report back at you. You know, it doesn't go away. And one of the most powerful exercises that we've seen that can dissipate this tension that exists on teams is called the Team Process Improvement Meeting. And it's a short 15-minute meeting that could happen once a week on top, like right before your team meeting. And the goal of it is for anybody to talk about anything over the last week that made them confused, angry, super happy, like on, on either end, right? That had to do with a process of the team. And the goal is to make feedback feel more like a routine dental checkup than a root canal. If you wait and let it fester and grow and build into something that causes you to yell and scream like you can't handle it anymore. You're not doing anybody any favors, and the relationship is gone at that point. But if you can address it and you can focus on the process that your team has in place that created the situation as opposed to the individual that you're upset at, you can do a lot to remove the tension out of that situation. Oh, that's a great suggestion. And especially focusing, you know, as you said, on the process rather than the person. It's not like you're always so disorganized when you have these meetings, you go off on all of these tangents. It's, you know what, I think we should set an agenda for the meeting. I think that would help solve this problem rather than, you know, focusing on the person and then like addressing it, as you say, so it doesn't fester and fester and fester to be like, you're so unproductive. You never get anything done. You can't stay on task, you know, like those sorts of like larger issues. Every one of us has feelings that result from communication with our team every week. The ones I mentioned, like confusion, anger, 
elation. And usually we just like shove those feelings deep down <laughs> and take them out at home, you know? And this is about bringing them to the surface with, when they are minute and could be addressed. And, and most of our team processes are unarticulated. Mm. Like we, we don't have them even stated out loud, never mind written down. And so it's bringing those processes that we have to the surface so that we can say, is this really how we want to be doing things? That's such a great way to think about it because then it's it's more of a like, let's solve this as an organizational problem rather than a people problem that this person is just bad. It's kind of assuming that people are coming from the best place, want to do the best work, and it's your job as a manager to figure out how to create a structure that can make that happen. You know, one of the other biggest ahas was that tension does not exist on one side ever. So if you think you have an employee that's underperforming or doing something wrong, I promise you that there is something that you're doing that is equally contributing to that tension in that relationship. And if you don't have the curiosity and the desire to learn what it is that you're doing to contribute to that, you'll never be able to fix the situation and you'll keep repeating it with every other employee that you have. Yeah, that's really important to think about of, you know, if they're doing something wrong, taking a step back and figuring out how you're doing something wrong. And I I wonder, you know, if if you're a manager and you you either have an employee that's doing things wrong or you do get the feedback that, you know, you're doing some, you know, you do your 360 review and you you get the feedback that, you know, you have these areas you need to work on. What's the next step that you should do when you get that honest feedback or when you know that there's problems? How do you, as a manager, kind of start addressing those in yourself? I would say the most important is don't punish anybody for the feedback that you receive. And as silly as that sounds, that's the first thing that happens. They'll call their team into a meeting and say, somebody anonymously said this, and it's so untrue, and we're not leaving this room until I find out who that is. Well, you have now communicated how you feel about feedback and what you're going to do about it, which is nothing, right? So the opposite of that, which is the much more productive behavior, is to share with your teammates, like you received a piece of feedback and you're going to take it very seriously. You've hired a coach to help you address it, or you're going to try to make these kinds of changes and you want them to hold you accountable to the things that you're going to try to do. So I think showing them how seriously you take this feedback will encourage them to give you even more honest feedback next time. Yeah. And you know, it's something, and I, I think I've mentioned it on the show in, in other contexts before, and it's it's just a mindset shift to really view feedback as a gift because it's a, you know, especially if it's, if it's anonymous, but, it, you know, and especially if it's not, it's a risk to tell, you know, somebody how you feel, but it's also like really giving them a gift to be able to improve that they, they didn't have otherwise. Yeah, I spent a lot of my time helping organizations uncover blind spots. And the thing about blind spots is that they're not weaknesses. They're not things that you know you're not doing well. They are things that you think are going exceptionally well <laughs> that you are actually doing quite poorly at. And you'll never uncover a blind spot on your own. It takes feedback from others to help shine a light on this huge opportunity for growth and improvement. And if you think you've gotten to a level as a leader where you don't need any more feedback, you're pretty much done growing. I would say like that's a good place to decide to stay because the only way that growth is going to happen is if you continue to uncover those blind spots and opportunities to improve yourself as a leader. Many times on, on this show, we talk about how to improve a workplace and we talk about that change really comes from the top down. And I feel like a lot of what we're talking about here 
kind of feels like it applies to middle managers, although of course it applies to all you know managers and leaders. But for workplaces with several layers of management, which is a lot, how can the C-suite kind of set policies in a culture that will help kind of keeping well-meaning team leaders from falling into some of these traits and mistakes? I think that a lot of us fall into the trap that we think there's some sort of destination of leadership where we can stop learning and improving. And it is those boards and C-level teams that publicly say, here's my coach, here are the things I'm working on this year that are going to model it for their organization and encourage people that it's okay to admit that you don't do something well and work to improve it. I think as a leader, you should make a list of the types of behaviors that are important for your team to exhibit. Maybe you care about psychological safety. Maybe you care about innovative ideas, whatever it is, and then come up with some kinds of questions around each one. Like, what could we as a team do to better encourage people to share their ideas and come up with new things to try? And then there should always be a chunk of the questions about you as a leader. What is it that I'm doing to encourage your work? Or what might I be doing inadvertently to get in the way of our team's progress and efforts. And as I mentioned, those courage questions, you know, is there anything that I'm doing to destroy the innovation and courage of our team? And what am I doing to improve the courage and innovation of our team? I think oftentimes we have blind spots about things that we're doing well that we need to do more of. And understanding those is just as valuable as understanding the bad blind spots. So it sounds like as a manager, you can really, you know, you have an opportunity in the beginning when you're onboarding somebody to get a handle on, take, you know, 15 minute, half an hour feedback of getting a handle on how they like to be managed, what they've liked and disliked about previous bosses. And then you have that opportunity, constant opportunity, it sounds like in a 360 review process that should, it sounds like probably be part of your, you know, annual review cycle of asking those questions. And again, you, you know, you believe, and it, it does make sense that those should be anonymous in that 360 review. 100%. And they should not be punished, even in an anonymous basis. You know you're uncovering blind spots when you're getting feedback that you find surprising, maybe even a little bit painful. But that surprise is a really important element because it really indicates that you're uncovering a big area and opportunity for growth. And so for me personally, whenever I'm ready to grow or grow my business, I seek out those surprising pieces of feedback. One of the questions you might ask is, you know, tell me something surprising about my leadership ability or what I could be doing better. And so we should strive to uncover those surprising pieces of feedback at least once a year. I mean, you wouldn't want it like once a week. <laughs> That's too much. I'm human. I hurt when people give me that surprising feedback. But once a year, that's a good time for us to reassess and find those opportunities to grow. Yeah. And if you build it into your annual review process, then like any sort of review that you see if you progress and you see if you're actually doing it and you see if, you know, these same things are coming up from different employees year after year, then you're not improving. You're not, you know, addressing those issues. So many of us operate under the philosophy that no news is good news. <laughs> you know, like if people aren't coming to us and telling us how horrible we are, then we must be doing everything right. And if I learn anything through the process of understanding the impact that I had on others and that of these 50, you know, in quotes, bad bosses, it's that a lot of people are keeping the way we impact them to themselves. 
And the only way we'll understand opportunities for us to improve is if we seek it out. You can't just have an open door policy. You must go out, grab them, and tell them that it's important for you to hear that surprising and maybe even painful feedback. That's a really great point that, you know, you hear that it's kind of a cliche that you hear so much like, my door is always open. And it's like, but no one's going to actually walk through your door and tell you you're a bad boss because you're doing X, Y, and Z. They need to have that opportunity to do that in a safe space where they're not going to get retaliated against. Can you even imagine? Can you imagine (laughs) doing that to your boss? No, you have to create the space and assure them that it is a safe one and that is what you want. And so for me personally, it took several emails with some of the people that used to work for me for me to assure them that's what I wanted. I just wanted to listen and apologize. Yeah. And it wasn't until I created that space years later that they had these like really vivid memories that they chose to share with me. And really like the, you know, otherwise the feedback that you get is the person leaving, right? Like I think about, you know, one of my truly bad bosses, the one that yelled and threw things. And I didn't say you're an awful boss. I got a new job, you know, and that's, that's what people do. If you're a truly awful boss, you know, that's the feedback you get. But they don't take that as feedback. They think, well, she couldn't cut it. So she decided to leave. You know, they explain Mm -hmm. it away. And, you know, if you think that you're never in the wrong (laughs) and that everybody else is the problem, I strongly recommend one of these 360 reviews. I think you might be surprised by what you hear. And, you know, and it ties back so much to so many of the other topics that we, we talk about all the time, like showing vulnerability in the workplace. You know, that's something that has become increasingly important, as we mentioned, you know, employees are people. And, and we've really seen the, the human side of ourselves and our coworkers a lot more and being able to show that vulnerability of like, yeah, I'm, you know, this COO, CFO, and I still need to work on these things. And I'm going to be transparent about the fact that I need to work on these things, I think probably goes a long way. I mean, psychological safety is a really big one. I have been hired by organizations to help improve psychological safety inside the organization as a whole. And all roads always lead to the board and the executive team. And it's a very difficult conversation to have. Like, this isn't keyboarding skills. The only way that people feel safe exhibiting this behavior is if they see it modeled from the very top. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Tell us about your worst boss or your best boss experience. Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag The New Way We Work. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. 